This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 119. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here. On the show today, I have Danny Woodford. I've been tracking him for several months. He's a really kind of a quiet guy, former Pentagon military, super successful. He's done close to a thousand units and is doing some really, really exciting stuff. And I wanted him to share with you his journey, which so for many of us started with single family houses before he saw the light and he got into multifamily. And what I really like about this interview, he really talks about how people can break into the business, build a resume by partnering. And we talk quite a bit about towards the end of the episode of how people can actually do that. How can they start partnering with more experienced people and tactics and strategies they can use for that. So let's get right into the interview with Danny Woodford. Here we go. Hey, Danny, welcome to the show today. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Give us a little intro to yourself before we dive into your story. Yeah, so Daniel Woodford, I'm with Mission Bay Investments, and we're a multifamily investor here in the Mid-Atlantic uh, in the Southeast, and we also are in Texas. We like value-add type opportunities, 100 units and above. That's kind of what we look at. We're aggressively sourcing deals right now, and now we're also opening up an arm of where we're sourcing capital. So that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Well, you're doing some very exciting things, and I look forward to getting into that. Rewind the clock a little bit here and think back to your Pentagon days. And, you know, why did you get started with real estate in the first place? What was going on in your life where you kind of were scratching your head going, hey, I got to change something? I just moved here to Virginia in 2009. I got stationed at the Pentagon and individuals that are in the military, it's a little difficult to live as close as you can to DC. It's, you know, the pricing is a little difficult. We're about, you know, 35, 40 miles away. It took me two hours to get to the Pentagon from seat to seat. That was not fun. And that was every day for about four and a half years. But even before that, I was in Los Angeles. So at Los Angeles Air Force Base, you know, we lived 75 miles away from the base at that point. I traveled into LA every day in LA traffic. So I went from LA traffic to DC traffic. Neither one are fun. Two and a half hours to the base in LA and then two hours at least back home. I was just missing a lot of time, a lot of time on the road, missing a lot of time with my family. And that's when I kind of got to the point where I knew I wanted to retire from the military. I really was enjoying what I was doing, very fulfilling part of my life, but didn't really have control of my time, didn't really have complete control of whether I could spend the time with my family or not. There were some big events that really were you know, dear to me that I missed because of this. And so you know, about four or five years out, I knew I was going to retire. I decided, you know, I got to do something different. I've got to figure out something. Because I could have you know, retired, gotten out, and did what a lot of military folks do, go back, work for a government contractor. I was in the space field, so I could have done the same thing here in D.C., but it's just not something that I wanted to do. And so, you know, about four or five years out, my wife and I, we put a plan together, you know, nights and weekends. And the times when I'm commuting, like on the bus or on the train or whatever, I'm constantly reading, listening to podcasts, you know, getting any calls that I can get into whoever I need to talk to on my team and my network. And from nights and weekends, we just decided, you know, we got to put a plan together to kind of replace my income as quickly as possible so that when I got to the point when I could retire from the military that, you know, I didn't have to go back and get back into the, let's call it, you know, the rat race, so to speak. And so that's kind of what we did. Yeah, it's interesting. So a few things that you mentioned, you guys sat there and you talked about it. That's really important. And then people always say, how can you do this with a full-time job? And you just mentioned, hey, you know, you got to sit down, you got to make it a priority and you did nights and weekends. 
nights and weekends. Nights and weekends. Really, it's, it's what it was. We started off with single families in Baltimore. We were doing fix and flips. We were doing fix up to hold as rentals so we could create that passive income. And it was like every Saturday, every Sunday, I was in Baltimore. In the evenings when I'm coming home on the bus, I'm trying to make calls to brokers, to realtors, to you know contractors and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how we did it. That's a challenging thing to do. And you live in Northern Virginia where I do. And Baltimore is, while relatively close, it's really not that close. You have a lot of traffic there. Depending on where you are in Baltimore, it may not be the most pleasant place to be at. We flipped a few homes there as well. It's definitely a challenge. Uh, a lot of people think it's, you know, I don't have the time. That's not possible. And you clearly demonstrate it is. So you were thinking real estate passive income and you did single family houses. What did you do in single family houses? What was kind of your initial plan there? Well, really was to kind of build a portfolio. And part of the plan was also was to do kind of our fixing, we call them retail sale type opportunities where we'd fix them up, sell them, use that capital, bring it into the, you know, fix and repair for our rentals. And so we were continually to build our rental portfolio in that regard. Now, at what point did you start thinking about multifamily or something bigger? When did that happen and why did that happen? Yeah. So as we were doing these single family houses, there was actually a seminar and I thought that I wanted to grow that business. And it was a single family housing seminar. And we went to the seminar and realized that, you know, we didn't know if we were learning anything more than we had already known. And I asked a person next to me, hey, are you going to get involved with, you know, the next step? And the person said, well, actually, I think I'm rather look at multifamily. So that's kind of what we did. We said, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll look at that. And that made sense, you know, to go from, you know, the single family houses. And we always kind of thought we wanted to go multifamily, but that kind of was the stepping stone to kind of, you know, get in. So that's kind of how we kind of moved over. Yeah. Why did you think it was a necessary next step? Why were you guys talking about that? What were you trying to achieve that you felt you couldn't do with the single family house stuff? I thought single families were good, but, you know, multifamilies just offered a little bit more with regards to obviously efficiencies that you have, you know, of scales and that type of thing. You know, the financing is certainly more attractive. And that's probably another aspect, you know, as we got further and further along with our single families and we're doing this, you know, all on our own personal credit, it gets to the point where all of a sudden you get tapped out. But when you're looking at multifamily, there's multiple ways you can structure it. It's non-recourse lending. And one of the things that I realized early on, which was kind of an aha type of moment, was, wait a minute, I can use the exact same, call it pot of money, to buy this multifamily with non-recourse lending. And then that exact same pot of money, I can buy another one. And I'm not really depleting my funds as much. So that's one of the things we did. One of the major concerns that people have in getting multifamily is uh, they don't have the capital to do that. Now, it sounds like you maybe had some capital from the single family house business to put into your first deal. Talk a little bit about your concern about capital. I mean, we've always had a concern from capital. You know, we've always been, you know, the type of company that would go out and look to raise money. And so even though we had, you know, some capital of our own, we still went out and tried to bring in investors as we could. So what point did you start raising money? Did you start doing that for some of your single family houses? Did you start doing it at multifamily? Talk about that as you got started raising money. What was that like? So yeah, we definitely were raising money for single families. It was my partner and I, Chuck Triska, we raised capital for that operation. And then as we transitioned over into multifamily, we found it was you know a pretty easy transition to move those investors into this new venture that we were doing. We were able to take those folks over. And then as we continued to have success with multifamily, obviously we just grew our investor base from there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Talk about what did you do to kind of prepare yourself for the multifamily part of the plan? I read as much as I could. I tried to get as educated as much as I could. I'll be honest, I wish I knew that there was a program here in Northern Virginia that I could be a part of in your program. I definitely would have done something like that. It was the education piece was the biggest piece for us. We had to make sure that we were ready. And let's talk about your first deal. How did you find it? How big was it? Talk about a little bit how you did that first deal. 
we found it through a broker relationship. We just were calling brokers off a of loop net, if I recall, and we just continued to call until somebody called us back. And so it was like eight calls later, eight different brokers later, we finally got somebody to call us back. And it was a 40-unit apartment building that was in Richmond. So that's the first deal that we closed on in Richmond. So you found it through a broker, 40 units. Can you talk a little bit about the deal itself? Was there a value-add deal? What was due diligence like? What can you share about the deal? Yeah, 40 units certainly had a value-add component to it. It was kind of a dated property. It needed upgraded cabinets, fixtures, flooring, and that type of thing. And to be quite honest, we didn't even get started into the value-add part of it all that well before we actually sold the property. We were actually able to ride that market a little bit. And we actually sold that property within under two years. So you were executing the plan uh-huh. and you sold it because someone made you an offer or you just listed it or what happened? No, we sold it. The same broker found us a buyer for it, made us an offer. And he actually ended up bringing another deal to us right behind this. So we ended up doing a 1031 exchange, but the broker found us a buyer on that. All right. So this is pretty cool. So can you share a little bit of what you bought the property for and what the value add was like two increased rents or what you did to the NOI and then what you sold it for? We bought it for $1.1 million. We did some exterior work on the exterior. There was some painting that we needed to do and that type of thing. But we really didn't really get to the interior as much. We did some of the electrical work. We changed some electrical panels out. So we kind of did some of the necessary stuff up front. And we did the parking lot. We did fencing. And as we were getting to the interiors, that's when we got the offer. But yeah, that's kind of where we were. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you sold it for a 1031 exchange. Can you talk a little bit about 1031 exchanges and what the benefit of that is? Yeah. So 1031 exchange is a rule, IRS rule that allows you to exchange basically your profits in a piece of real estate into a lifetime, uh, another piece of real estate and defer your taxes in doing so. And so we were able to do that. Like I said, we bought that 40 unit at 1.1 million. We sold it for right at 1.5 million. And we moved those profits into a 98 unit in Richmond. And that one was a $5.8 million purchase. Were you raising money for both of these deals? So the first deal, the 40 unit was basically done in-house. Well, we had one investor. It was myself and my partner and one other investor. So we basically did it in-house. The next deal, the 98 unit, we actually did a syndication that was was right at $2 million for that deal. That is amazing to go from that within two years. Tell me a little bit about that 98 unit. What was the deal with that? So we still have that property. It's a 98 unit, a value add. Again, this was kind of a great area of Richmond. It's in Henrico County, which is, you know, one of the better counties in Richmond. You know, interiors needed to be redone. It's a little heavier lift, but uh, we saw that the rents were, you know, at least $100 below market. We actually started our value add program there. We've gotten, I think, 14 done at this point, and we actually got another offer on that deal. We may even sell this one also, but we're also looking at refinance too. So we're kind of, you know, determine what we're going to do here. What have you done since these two deals, Danny? So since these two deals, our business kind of really started to take off a little bit. We moved immediately into a 211-unit deal in Georgia. We did a 104-unit deal in Texas. We just closed a 251-unit deal in Winston-Salem. We've got two other deals under contract currently. One's in Tyler, Texas, and one's in um, Memphis. That is fabulous. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's impossible to find a deal right now, and I'd rather wait till, you know, something happens and I'll buy on the back end of that. What's your take on that? I think that the market is kind of, you know, at the later stages, but if you buy it right, I mean, there's still deals out there. If you buy the right value add opportunity, there's still deals out there. So we're still aggressively looking. Now, why are you think you're doing deals when some other people are basically saying there's nothing out there? Well, we are actually finding deals. We do scrutinize it as much as we can. I mean, we're very selective on what we take on. 
We are very conservative with our underwriting right now, but we're still finding deals that we can still provide a good uh, return for our investors. And it's clearly once you do your first deal, things get easier. Is that your kind of your observations as well? Could that be one of the big differences of someone who says they're not finding deals versus someone who's maybe done a few? I think that that is the case. I think one of the things that is probably understated is really having that resume, right? Because that's when brokers start bringing you stuff. That's when other investors start coming to you and asking to be a part of the deal. And that's when lenders start really, you know, paying attention real well. So I can't understate that. The resume is really important. Clearly. Uh, let's talk about partnerships real quickly because partnerships has been key to what we've done. And I know you're doing the same thing. I know you're working with one of our students on one deal. And this is certainly one area we've started growing our capacity to raise money, not just increasing number of investors that we have, but bringing people into the fold that have the capacity to also raise additional money. Talk a bit more how that's working for you in your business. We always are networking for individuals, not just for individual investors, but for individuals that are able to raise capital, have contacts, and that type of thing, and are confident they can raise capital. So we've always done that. I describe a little bit how that works for people that may not be familiar. I've talked about it on a previous show to some degree, but talk about how that works and how someone might be able to get involved in something like that. So the way the SEC rules work is, you know, if you bring somebody in that raises capital for you, you got to bring them into the deal. Anybody who raises capital for us is brought into the management team with us. It gives two things. It compensates them for their efforts and they're part of the management team also. But also, it's appealing to some of the investors because it helps to put something on their resume. Well, that's exactly right. And it creates real opportunity for people. And what I'm noticing is that people come through the ranks. They educate themselves just like the syndicator does, but they gravitate towards the money-raising part of things. And it creates a similar opportunity for people that you know don't prefer calling brokers or analyzing deals, but they do like the idea of networking and raising money. I see more and more of that. And there's a need for people like that as well. Some of our students, Christine being one of them, but there's several others that kind of struggle with the regular syndicator. There's like putting a square peg in a round hole. You talk about what are you really good at? I'm a more of a relationship person. You know, I really like talking to people. You know, you're like, you know, why don't you use the skills and what you've learned and actually use that to raise money and then, you know, work with Danny or people like you and I and raise the money for that. And people are doing that with great success. I find it just creates opportunity for them. And it's not a Many times an exclusive arrangement, it's wherever the deal is, right? So you find a deal, I find a deal, so-and-so finds a deal, and they're raising money, you know, and they're doing a, you know, one deal every other month, for example, and that's fabulous. And that's so right. it creates a lot of opportunity. So it's great that you're doing that as well. What's kind of next for you? Well, like I said, the next thing for us is we're going to focus on raising capital. That's the biggest thing because we're starting to source deals. It's still a difficult market to source deals. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but I think that we're at the point where we need to really start sourcing capital so we can kind of meet that demand. Well, that's right. You're finding a lot of deals and so you have a huge need for capital. Now, you were retired by the time you got started with multifamily. Is that right? I retired right at that point when I started. Yeah, about the same time. Did you kind of achieve your financial goals with the single family houses and the multifamily? At what point did that happen for you? And what was that feeling like? for you? I don't know if I've even achieved my goals yet, but I felt comfortable enough with when I retired from the military and focused exclusively on multifamily. And what does your wife think about all this stuff? Does she kind of think you're crazy in the beginning? She's supportive? Did she come around a little bit? How does she feel about what you know Danny's doing? Yeah, she's always been supportive. Always been supportive. I must admit, she's always been there. So That's fabulous. That's a huge help. All right, now you're sitting across having coffee with someone and you know they want to do what you've done. They want to replace your income with passive income. What is your advice to them on how to get started and become successful? If I look back, 
one of the things I found that had helped me along was, again, the resume aspect of it. I would go out and partner with someone that had the resume. That's what I would do. And I would bring either capital to the table or I'd bring a deal to the table and we would partner with that regard. And that way, continue to build my resume to the point that I could actually start doing it on my own. And on top of that, I don't think I would have started with single families, to be quite honest. I would have gone straight to what we're doing right now in the multifamily, you know, 100 units or above. It is a little bit different, but at the same time, I mean, it just requires a little bit of different type of education. It's no different than going to college. That's kind of where, where I was. Well, let, let's talk about that for a second, because that's kind of where you know people object, right? And people kind of you know, intellectually kind of agree with that statement, but they view single family house as a stepping stone you know, get some experience and then they will roll the money into multifamily. Now, when you say, let's skip the single family house, people kind of go, wait a minute, you're skipping a couple steps here. Now you don't have an experience. You don't have the capital. You're telling me I can fix both with education. What do you mean? So education as well as partnership, you know, and it's going to be a key. I mean, if you want to start, you know, in multifamily, I would say education and partner with someone who's done it. That's the way I found for me to get to where I am a little bit faster than typical, right? All right. So education is clearly one thing. Partnership. Let's talk about the partnership period because it's a very good point. So you're saying, hey, you can build your resume by partnering either by bringing the deals or the money. What does that look like for someone? And pick one or the other. We'll talk about both. Hey, let's say I want to bring you deals. What would that look like if I want to get started? And I want to partner with you. What would I need to do? So bringing the deal obviously entails, you know, doing your homework on the project, underwriting it, building the broker relationships that you need to obviously before that. Once that is done, then you're presenting it to myself or somebody like me as a full of package, as an investment opportunity. And so I'm going to evaluate it, make sure that it hits the numbers that I'm looking for to hit. At that point, we're going to partner up. I'm going to offer to bring the capital to the deal. I'll offer to bring the financing to the deal, and then we'll marry it that way. So I send you a, a marketing package that said, Danny, I found a deal. What do you think? Do you want to see that or do you want to see something else? What I like to see is a little more on the underwriting side of it. I like to see where a deal has actually been analyzed and underwritten in a five-year or 10-year pro forma. So I can see what the cash on cash is. I can see what the average annual returns are, what the internal rate of return is. Those type of metrics I like to see before I determine whether I even want to move forward with a deal or not. All right, great. So I find a deal, I analyze it, and I send it to you with my analysis. Is that good enough for you or what comes next in that discussion? <laughs> Once I do my initial underwriting, I'll look at it with my team. If it's something that we want to move forward with, you know, we would get back with that investor. We would say, hey, this is something we want to proceed with you. We would identify everybody's roles and responsibilities. Typically, ours is obviously going to be to sign for the financing and to assist with and maybe even just bring all of the capital to the deal. The investor would be part of the management team with us and would be a part of the asset management of that property after the purchase and, and throughout the whole period. Clearly, when someone sends you a deal, they're not sending you the marketing package off LoopNet. They're not really adding a lot of value, is my sense. And I see a lot of that. They'll send me a marketing package. Hey, Michael, uh -huh. here's a deal. And it's like uh -huh. a deal that's listed by you know, CBRE. Or I'm looking for underwriting, some amount of analysis and research, and some amount of, I would say, almost control or relationship with a seller or the broker that gives them any uh -huh. advantage of that, right? So sure. it just aggravates me to no end when people do that. And it's, I just find that people just don't really understand what's required and you know, are not really respectful of people's time. So I just advice for people who want to find deals is go find the deals, analyze it, and do the research behind it, pre-negotiate the deal, and then deliver that to yeah. you. And then you're going to go, right. this is fantastic. I love this so much. Yeah. It, it makes it move a lot faster. That's for sure. It really you know? does. If you just get a package, you know, that's something that I'm not going to have time to really evaluate, you know, so. 
Let's talk about the money raising side. So again, the education, in my opinion, what I've seen is the same, whether someone wants to find the deals or raise the money. If you're a money raiser, you still have to know about multifamily. You still have to know about all aspects of it because you have to seem credible to your investors. You have to know what the heck you're talking about and you're feeling the calls, right? So people grow up and they take these seminars and boot camps and then they tend to gravitate. I'd say about 60, 70% gravitate towards the deal finding side, the syndication side, and then 30% tend to gravitate towards the money raising side. And a lot of people actually don't know that's an option. And as we talk about here, it is an option. Now, if someone wants to raise money for you, how does that relationship start? What do you look for there? And how does that start working? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the person that's raising money is going out and talking to their investors about our deal. Obviously, I've got to educate them on the deal. And then typically it's, you know, they're educating them on the deal or they're bringing that investor to me so that I can kind of go over the deal structure with them. And so what are you looking for in that money raiser? Are you looking for previous experience? Or are you looking for, I mean, what are you looking for? If someone says, hey, Danny, I want to work with you. I want to raise $400,000. I mean, how do you handle that person? There's a couple of things I look for when I'm dealing with individuals that want to raise money because it's really critical because I've been to deals where I've gotten down to the last day and individuals that say they're going to bring money didn't bring the money. Now you end up scrambling to get the deal closed. So yeah, it's really important that someone is really serious They've got to have the education. I really want them to understand the education part of it. But they also have to have, it's kind of a cliche, but a reason why they're doing it. Because anybody can say, but when it gets down to it, it takes some work. You've got to interface with various different people. It takes more than one interface. Sometimes people say they're going to do it and they don't. Sometimes, you know, you can get it raised fairly quickly, but it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, it does. It does. And from my perspective, because we have similar conversations with people and the education is key. The drive has got to be key. We love you know, people who have raised money before because we found the same thing. People say, we think they can raise $500,000. Actually, at the end of the day, cannot because they didn't properly engage the investor. And so that creates that strain, that conflict, stress at the very end. So we normally, if we're going to do, we might have two or three money raisers in there. So mm-hmm. if someone falls short, maybe we have someone that can pick up the slack. On the other hand, we found that people who can raise some amount of money, two, $300,000 first time around, all of a sudden become much better at raising money. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, Christine raising five, six hundred thousand dollars for this deal. Well, she's going to raise one million dollars plus for the next deal and two million plus for the next deal. So it's kind of like this ramp up curve. But we are finding that it is challenging to get people over that first deal hump, which, again, that first deal is so important. Once that person has that first deal, it's game over. Getting that person there is key. And the education, frankly, is key. And like you said, the drive is key as well. And then hedging from your side. Right. If that person falls short, can I still close this deal? What can I do there? This is great. I really like your suggestions about people can get started by partnering to build your resume. So Danny, how can people connect with you? They can call or email. My phone number is 661-816-0335. And my email is daniel at missionbayinvestments.com. Well, that's fabulous, Danny. I, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your, your insights and your experience here with everybody. Again, especially about how people can break in, build a resume partnering. So thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Let's review some of the key points here from the interview. I recall earlier, Danny was talking about how he and his wife did. That's really key. If you have a spouse, it really helps to have your spouse on board with what you're doing. And I find that with a spouse is not, it's definitely a key challenge that you have to be able to overcome. Getting on the same page with your spouse is key talking about it. Because what you're about to do here with apartment buildings is really you're creating a future for your entire family. So the more you can involve your spouse or even your children in this, the better you can because then also the goals becomes more than just about you. So that's really key. 
about finding the time. He talked about nights and weekends. Okay, this is so, so important. It's all about priorities. You've got to make this a priority. And if you make it a priority, if it's important enough for you, you will find the time. In this case, it's nights and weekends during lunch hour as well. Also, one of the things he said is that it's a bit of a numbers game. He made a comment earlier that, you know, he had to call 10 brokers to get one of them to call him back. And people that say, oh, I called this broker, I made an offer and it didn't work. Obviously, it doesn't work. It's a numbers game, guys. And you you know this inherently. The people who are doing deals like Danny, we're doing deals, our students are doing deals. Those are hustlers. They're out there calling brokers to take him to lunch or doing that kind of stuff. That's what you got to be able to do. I really like what Danny said about how to build your resume by partnering. And we see this so frequently and we do it ourselves with our students as well. And the great way you can partner is by bringing the deal or the money. Those are the two ways to do it. And the key, the bottom of foundation, all of that is education. And we find that people come through our training classes, the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings, for example, and then they will gravitate naturally to one or two of these. Most of them are obviously want to be syndicators. They want to do it themselves. But there's some others who struggle and don't love spreadsheets. They really are they excel at the relationship side. So pick whichever you're strong at and follow that. The key for that is that you need to provide value to your prospective partner, okay? So if you're going to find deals, don't send them the marketing pack and say, hey, here's this great deal. What do you think? Don't do that. So in our own, we have this deal desk process. Uh, if you go to the michaelblank.com forward slash partner, you can read about our deal desk process through the Dealmakers Mastermind program. It outlines the process of bringing a deal to us that is actually pre-analyzed, pre-negotiated, and pretty much there. Now, we typically, through the deal desk process, help the student get the deal to a letter of intent and or under contract. But really, there's a lot of work that was done up front. And that's really key. If you want to bring a deal to us or a syndicator, don't just send them the market package, okay? Really follow this process that we do during the deal desk process so that you're really providing value. If you're raising money, make sure you have the education. You can get that through the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings through our coaching program. There's other various programs out there as well. Really educate yourself about multifamily and then start raising money. Follow our money raising process that we have. Get verbal commitments. Get your investors to sign a letter of intent to invest with you. That's something that we teach as well. And that you can bring to your syndicator partner. You can actually use it as a form of proof of funds to build credibility. Right. So make sure you're providing value and you're not going there, oh, I'm a newbie, help me. Okay. That that is not going to help you. You really need to provide value to the partner. So Again, education is key. And we talked about some of the products we have. Check them out at themichaelblank.com forward slash products. In particular, the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings, the most comprehensive course on the planet. It comes with a syndicated deal analyzer, probably the most popular multifamily analysis tool on the planet because I spend the most time on two things. One is analyzing deals and the second one is raising money. So it covers all aspects, including due diligence and contract and all that stuff. It also comes with six months of this dealmaker's mastermind I was talking about where you can upload your analysis and get feedback. I mean, how do you know you're doing it right? So here you get feedback from a live coach on your analysis and it also gives you access to a deal desk that allows you to submit a deal for partnering and we raise all the capital for it. It also comes with two tickets to our Financial Freedom Summit that we do twice a year. And that's really where you get to experience a simulation of a purchase of a 69-unit apartment building. So you're going to be working in small groups together, and you're going to go through the entire process of buying an apartment building. So you get the entire thing. And again, my mission is to help you guys do your first deal. I talk about the first deal a lot because it's so important. We saw it again today with Danny. After that first deal, man, it's like the sky's the limit, and you become this magnet for deals and for money. Our mission really is to help you do your first deal through all of our programs that we do. So Really appreciate you guys listening to this episode. Hope you got a lot of value out of it. 
Make sure, though, that you don't just listen, but really, really take action. That's the real key here. If you haven't done so already, download my free ebook. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building Deal. Raising money is at the key of doing your first deal. It's about 30 pages of a lot of, lot of information. So if you've done so, go to themichaelblank.com. That's T-H-E, Michael Blank, B-L-A-N-K, themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook and grab that. If you love the show, love to hear from you on iTunes with a review. So thanks again. I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.